All right, welcome to the Cavus Ships Podcast, where we try and cut through the fog of the murk and shine a bit of light on naval and maritime issues of the day. I'm Chris Cavus. And I'm Chris Cervello. The Cavus Ships Podcast is sponsored by HII. HII is the largest producer of undersea unmanned vehicles, making transoceanic missions possible. HII, delivering hard stuff done right. Coming up, Admiral Lisa Franchetti is the Navy's top uniformed officer, but for now, she cannot be confirmed as the next Chief of Naval Operations. So as acting CNO, where should she focus her efforts? Naval analyst Brian Clark zeroes in on what can be done in the short term where she might have a more immediate impact. We'll dive into the specifics right after taking a look at this week's Naval News. The U.S. Navy's command ship, USS Mount Whitney, with Commander Sixth Fleet Vice Admiral Tom Ishi embarked, arrived at Istanbul, Turkey on August 18th for a port call. It was the closest the flagship has come to the Black Sea since Russia's February 2022 invasion of Ukraine. A few days later, Turkey's new assault ship, Andalou, with three frigates exercised with the carrier USS Gerald R. Ford, cruiser USS Normandy, and the Greek frigate Eli in the eastern Mediterranean Sea, underscoring U.S.-Turkish naval cooperation. The assault ship USS Bataan, with destroyer Thomas Hudner, passed through the Strait of Hormuz on August 17th to enter the Persian Gulf. Iranian Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps ships and aircraft, including unmanned aircraft, closely monitored the passage, but while Iranian media claimed that U.S. helicopters were driven away from the Iranian ships, the U.S. Navy's Bahrain-based Fifth Fleet played down the events, saying the interactions were, quote, safe and professional. Canadian and Japanese naval forces joined with the U.S. Navy in mid-August for Exercise Noble Chinook, held in the northwestern Pacific Ocean, beginning August 22nd. The exercise, part of the worldwide large-scale exercise 2023, held by the U.S. Navy and Marine Corps, included the Japanese destroyer Hayuga, Canadian frigates Vancouver and Ottawa, and support ship Asterix, as well as the U.S. Navy destroyer Benfold. The destroyer USS Zumwalt, DDG-1000, arrived at HII's Ingalls Shipbuilding Shipyard in Pascagoula, Mississippi on August 19th for a major two-year modernization that will see large launch tubes installed for hypersonic conventional prompt strike missiles, replacing the ship's two 155-millimeter advanced gun systems. Zumwalt joins her sister ship Lyndon B. Johnson, DDG-1002, at the shipyard. LBJ has yet to enter active service and will follow Zumwalt in undergoing the modifications. USS Michael Monsoor, DDG-1001, the third ship in the class, remains in active service at San Diego and will be the last of the three to undergo the modernization. In new ship news, the towing, salvage, and rescue vessel Navajo, TATS-6, was christened August 26th in a ceremony at Bollinger Shipyards. Launched on May 24th, the Navajo is the first of up to 10 new ships being built by Bollinger in Louisiana and at Austell, USA in Alabama. In old ship news, the cruiser USS Mobile CG-53 was officially decommissioned and stricken on August 18th and immediately began a tow from San Diego to the inactive fleet at Bremerton, Washington. Two more cruisers are set to hold decommissioning ceremonies in September. The USS Lake Erie CG-70 on September 1st at San Diego and the USS San Jacinto CG-56 
on September 15th at Norfolk. The littoral combat ship USS Sioux City, LCS-11, was decommissioned and stricken on August 14th at Mayport, Florida, not even five years since being commissioned in November 2018, one of the shortest service lives for any U.S. Navy ship built since World War II. The Sioux City carried out four deployments during her career, three to the U.S. Fourth Fleet in the Caribbean and Central America, and in 2022, she made the first LCS deployment to the Sixth Fleet in Europe and the Fifth Fleet in the Middle East. And one of the most distinctive vessels ever built by the U.S. Navy has ended its operational life. The Floating Instrument Platform, or FLIP, was built in 1962 as a unique research platform able to pivot 90 degrees from floating on the water like any vessel to a vertical spar buoy with most of its 355-foot length below the water's surface. The one-of-a-kind vessel was built to help study long-range sound propagation for submarine warfare, but the platform supported research in geophysics, meteorology, physical oceanography, and other scientific fields. FLIP was based in San Diego and operated for most of its career by the Scripps Institution of Oceanography. FLIP was towed out from San Diego August 8th to be broken up for scrap. And that's a look at just some of this week's Naval News. Let's move to the discussion portion of our show. We are joined by Brian Clark, a return guest and friend of the pod. Brian is a senior fellow and the director of the Center for Defense Concepts and Technology at the Hudson Institute Think Tank. Brian is also a retired Navy commander, has done all sorts of think work for uh, government, both in and out of uniform. Brian, thank you very much for joining us. Great to be here. Thanks, Chris and Chris. You have a piece in Defense News. It's entitled, Admiral Franchetti, Biden's pick for CNO, should focus on the short game. Tell us what you mean by short game, and then tell us um, some of the things that you think that the Admiral should focus on while she is the acting CNO. The thought was, uh, you know, with the, you know, being an acting CNO, you don't really get a chance to lay out your, you know, future vision because you don't really have that mandate yet. Um, and it'd be presumptive, you know, to do that if you're not confirmed. Uh, and so instead of, you know, focusing on the kind of the long-term vision for the Navy, Admiral Franchetti should focus on the short-term, you know, focus on the, you know, what's, what's important right now uh, for the Navy over the next couple of years. Uh, and a lot of that involves the same types of things that she dealt with as vice chief. So readiness, uh, manpower, you know, uh, the, the workforce, um, and kind of near-term uh, initiatives to improve the capability of the fleet. And you know, a lot of that involves you know, what's going on with regard to the unmanned task force uh, and their efforts to create you know, new offices that are focused on innovation and disruption. Um, so a lot of that involves, you know, that's short-term actions that she can undertake as the acting CNO. You know, she's not presuming confirmation as the CNO. And uh, those are things that kind of emerge naturally out of her role as the, the vice chief. Uh, and that's really where the Navy needs help right now. I mean, I think the Navy is uh, is probably, in a lot of ways, it's uh, kind of in crisis. You know, I think there's a lot of challenges that the Navy is dealing with right now that I don't know are getting enough attention. Uh, and folks, uh, I think, you know, on the Hill and elsewhere tend to look at the long term uh, and are not focused nearly as much as they should be on the short term. Ryan, you, you talk about some of the things that aren't getting enough attention. What really isn't getting enough attention right now? I mean, I can think of a lot of things that People right. do worry about and to then do write about and have hold hearings about what's not right. getting enough attention. 
Yeah, so I'd say um, you know one area that's not getting enough attention is actually implementing change uh, in terms of innovation. You know, so there's a lot of activity uh, going on in the Navy with regard to innovation. We've got uh, the unmanned task force. We've got Task Force Fifty Nine. Uh, we got now Task Force Forty Nine. Um, you know, a lot of activity trying to come up you know with ways to introduce new technologies to the fleet, new operational concepts. But not a lot of it's changing, you know, the calculus of country of a leader of leaders of a country like China. You know, so China is not really influenced that much by what they see from Task Force 59 and 49. They don't they're not that worried about uh, Naval X, probably. You know, so what the Navy needs to do is come up with a way to really get some substantive new technologies, new tactics in place out in the Pacific, you know, to start impacting the you know pure competitor that we're supposed to be focused on China. Uh, and so Admiral Frank Hetty could do a lot there to take what's coming out of the unmanned task force, uh, the integrated battle problem, you know, that was recently completed uh, out in the Pacific, and really begin to, you know, put, you know, put some institutionalized systems in place to field unmanned systems and new technologies faster. There are some efforts going on in OpNav to do that right now, but she could accelerate that and institutionalize it a lot more quickly than the Navy is. And I think Admiral Paparo uh, on the Pacific would really appreciate that. So I'd say that's one big thing that could change is how do we get new technologies out to the fleet faster and actually deliver them to the pointy end rather than having them churning around in the Gulf of Mexico? Um, I'd say another big thing, and you've touched on this several times in the podcast, is readiness. We've got uh, 40% of the the submarine fleet is tied up in some long-term maintenance Uh, 40% plus of the amphibious force is unavailable for deployment. Um, We've got problems with surface ship maintenance, surface combatant maintenance. Uh, And, uh, you know, all of those kind of point to a lack of infrastructure uh, and capacity in our maintenance industrial base. Yet, you know, over on the Hill, you know, we've got people throwing more money at ship construction to build more ships that we can't maintain uh, and that we can't man if you look at our recruiting numbers. So we've got recruiting problems that we also need to address. And I think, you know, Admiral Franchetti could do a lot by advocating for more investment, more attention on readiness and, and uh, workforce than in getting more ships, you know, put under construction that the Navy can't man or maintain. You know, one thing that uh, I think over the years, a lot of jobs, not just the CNO, but a lot of, a lot of times when you have somebody who's in an interim period, um, you know, the acting whatever until a permanent person is, is found. You have a you have a certain window to inject an attitude, and what's missing in all this talk right now, actually all the actions right now that I think, is a sense of urgency. Right. There are you know a lot of people talk about you know our window is getting smaller you know we have to get moving blah 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 and then you go back and like okay it's business as usual the budget is business as usual we have all these long term projections and well in twenty thirty four we're going to have this and and there's a there's a distinct lack of we need to do stuff now as right. now I want to see something in six months. I want to see something by this time next year. I want to see it out there. Um, there's no push for that. There's right. talk about it in spots, but then there's, we, we, we hear the talk. We don't, I don't, I don't see too much walking the walk. Is right. that, is that fair? Yeah, I think that's a very good point. You know, so I was focused on the fact that, you know, Amber Franchetti has this sort of opportunity where she really doesn't have the ability to work on the long term. So she can focus her attention on the short term. But I think the other dimension of this, like you mentioned, is the fact that there's an urgency needed here where you've got, you know, combat commanders. You know, we've got, you know, folks like Admiral Paparo, Admiral Aquilino, 
You've got leaders elsewhere like you know Mike Studeman and others that are saying this is a near-term problem. China is a now problem, not a 2035 problem. Um, so we need to be acting with some more alacrity in terms of how do we transform the force a little faster, uh, introduce more capabilities faster or new capabilities faster. Um, how do we make the fleet ready? How do we get the people out there that we need? Um, that all needs to be you know, with a, with a sense of urgency, as you note. Um, and I think there just is a window here where Admiral Franchetti has actually given, you know, leeway to focus on that, focus on the near term and sort of eschew, you know, discussion about what might be going on down the road. Talk about unmanned. And, you know, one of the major lessons of the Ukraine war is the vast use of unmanned platforms of all types. Uh, and not only the vast use of them, but the fact that uh, most of them don't have a, an operational life that uh, a, a very long operational life at all. Right. Um, they're being used up in, in incredible numbers. Um, and yet they have a huge impact everywhere. Uh, you know, and obviously on the, on the, on the Naval side, um, Ukraine's development of explosive drones, explosive unmanned vessels has only increased and increased in their effectiveness. The Russians are, are getting better at, at counter um, moves to it. But it's definitely an era of warfare that um, that is that is exploding in front of our eyes. I have no idea what we're doing about it. Some of it, and I hope a lot of it's classified, but some of it shouldn't be classified. Right. Um, and and I but but I don't know what we're doing. I know that in the you know the all this stuff, the Task Force Fifty Nine, Task Force Forty Nine, all well and good. The overwhelming vast majority of all those platforms are contractor owned. They're not Navy owned. They're not US government owned. Um, they're trying them all out. They're seeing what works. It's a vast experimentation. Um, that's not, you know, how, yeah. how, you know how, 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 how are those efforts really getting into battle force planning? I don't right. know. And I think right. culturally, culturally is gonna be a resistance to, to implementing a lot of that because it's not government owned. Those are all right. contractor assets. They're not mine. We can't depend right. on them. Uh, and and yet, you know, the uniform side, where are those efforts really moving forward with some sort of alacrity and urgency? I don't see it. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. And, you know, another aspect of that is the the fact that the task force 59 and 49 are both really focused on ISR. You know, they're focused on maritime domain awareness. Um, they're both intended, particularly 59, on you know, creating a, a coalition amongst allies. So those capabilities have to be, you know, kind of the lowest common denominator as to what a bunch of countries want. So most of those countries don't want lethal explosive boats. <laughs> they want something that's going to keep an eye on their maritime environment. Um, and so, you know, by necessity, that that set of capabilities is really focused on a very narrow set of missions that is not something Admiral Paparo is that interested in, right? So out in the Pacific, you know, we don't need necessarily a bunch of ISR boats, you know, that, that are small and, you know, relatively low endurance and slow speeds. You know, we need capabilities that can probably deliver lethal effects or can do electronic warfare and do counter ISR and, you know, do the kinds of missions and anti-submarine warfare, you know, the missions that are important for a Western Pacific sort of uh, campaign. And uh, the frustration, you know, amongst, you know, me and a lot of people in Navy is, you know, our efforts at introducing unmanned systems have been sort of narrowly focused on, as you note, contractor-owned, contractor-operated vehicles that are supporting the kind of lowest and most lowest common denominator missions. And we need to start, you know, ramping up our production and fielding of unmanned systems that deliver 
on operational problems that commanders really have. And, you know, the unmanned task force has been doing some good work there, but they have not been empowered, right? They don't have money. They have to sort of, you know, beg around and, and tin cup to get people to donate resources to actually field these systems. Uh, and you've got people like Admiral Papara out there saying, I've got ideas for how I'd use unmanned systems to change the calculus, change the game here with China, using the lessons from Ukraine. Uh, and we just can't support them because we've not created a process, that, an engine, you know, that delivers that to them in the same way the Ukrainians have. So I think that's something Admiral Franchetti could really turn the crank on. Um, you know, we just finished a study for the Navy that looked at this exact question. Um, and there's an opportunity there to take what the Navy's doing and basically turbocharge it with more focus and more money. And I think that's a huge opportunity that they're, they're going to miss if they don't take advantage of this window for the next year or two when they could do it. Let me put my um, E-ring ballerina shoes on uh, for, for a second and talk a little in, inside baseball. Right. There are a lot of folks you, you've identified all the fleet issues. You, you sat very close to uh, the CNO. I, I, I've been on the CNO staff. There's a lot of grass mowing day to day stuff that can take the attention of a of a CNO, any CNO, whether they're the acting CNO or whether they're the, um, you know, Senate confirmed in the job CNO. What I really liked about your short term versus long term is I kind of think that if Admiral Franchetti or really any of the acting uh, service chiefs, uh, you, you know, you could easily sort of replace, um, you, you know, your approach with any of the services. Uh, I like that it, it's action oriented and it, it's not uh, grass cutting. It, it's not ceremonial. From your view, right. other than the ceremonial, other than the day to day, what prevents uh, Admiral Franchetti from doing the things that you uh, let lay out? Um, is it time or is it authorities? What what would be her biggest obstacles that she and the OPNAF staff need to overcome in order to be an effective acting CNO? Yeah, so I'd say one thing in terms of innovation and accelerating, you know, the kinds of, you know, new introduction of new technologies, you know, to, to be a little bit more specific. Um, to speed that up, I think part of what you have to do is you have to work with people in OSD because some of them own the the money and they have you know competing efforts there. And there's opportunities to do that because we have worked with some of those people. And I think the Navy, if they reached out and said, let's collaborate on this, we've got a process we want to use, you know, the taking the unmanned task force model forward. Yeah, you know, we could make that happen. But it might require her to be the interlocutor to do that because you need senior people to make decisions. The other thing is the secretary's office, secretary of the Navy's office, um, you know, because they you know, own a lot of these acquisition authorities and you need them to, you know, get the RDA organization on board with this. So, so it, it requires the CNO to take the time to go interact with a bunch of other senior colleagues that are people that the CNO would normally not necessarily meet with and talk with in the normal course of duties. So you're not going to run into them at a meeting you would normally go to because you don't go to the same meetings, but you'll have to go make those connections and start working out. Here's the process. Here's the flow chart I want to use. You know, what's going to hold me up? You know, can you support this? You know, can you give me, you know, can you lend me the people that have the correct authorities to make this happen? So that's, it's a lot of sort of, you know, building those relationships and, you know, moving out on a plan. Um, and I think that's certainly doable, but you got to take the time to do it. And then in terms of the readiness issues and the workforce, you know, the, the personnel issues in the Navy, which I think are extremely important. And I, I don't think get nearly as much attention. You guys devote attention to it. But I think, you know, I think a lot of people have, have sort of ignored the, the personnel challenges the Navy is facing right now. 
Um, that in, that's the CNO basically just going and providing direction to her subordinates and going to the Hill, because I think the Hill's a partner in this. You know, Congress has not necessarily, Congress has been fine giving the money to the Navy that the Navy says it needs, you know, to hire people to keep the ships ready. Um, the Navy's probably underestimated both those categories of costs. We probably need to go back to Congress and say, you know, we need to shoot higher in terms of what funding might be required to keep a ready force and what might be necessary to keep a, the right people in the right place. Also, Congress, don't give me any more ships if you're not going to give me the money to pay for the people and the, and the maintenance that's required for them. Um, and to be very forceful about that. And I don't know that we've been forceful enough in making the case on those issues. So I think, you know, those are areas where I think the CNO could, you know, do this, but it requires reaching out to people that you may not normally interact with and making a bunch of connections and, you know, being a little bit, you know, controversial or a little bit, uh, you know, contrary, I guess, to, to get the job done. Yeah, what, what, we're talking about opportunities. Right now, we have, we have three service chiefs, all, the, all were vice chiefs, um, who are now the acting top uniform officer in their service. Um, this, this situation shows no sign of coming to a conclusion anytime soon. Right. What are the limitations? Normally, we would have had a change. We, we would have a change of command by now, August, September. Um, there'd be a new person in charge. Uh, they could move out. What are the limitations while this situation goes on that you see? Well, actually, you know, really, there's not that many limitations. The one limitation is, you know, uh, Lisa Franchetti's uh, bandwidth <laughs> because she's having to do essentially the vice chief's job and the CNO's job. So I think if Admiral Franchetti uh, was able to offload most of those vice chief duties to some of the, the deputy chief, uh, deputy CNOs, um, then you know that would free her up to focus on CNO stuff. But in terms of like actual authorities, you know, she should have all the authorities that she needs to do the things that the CNO would normally do. Um, keeping in mind that some of these authorities always reside with the secretary anyway. And, you know, the, so the secretary is who you have to go to to get, you know, permission to do some of this stuff. So that's why I think it's really important to, for her to start reaching out to the other people who can essentially say no and, and be roadblocks to uh, improvements. Um, and a lot of that has to do with, you know, and Chris, you and I have both seen this in person. It, it involves like the principal the four star going and talking to their counterparts or even some people who are junior to them that are in other parts of the government um, and making the appropriate, you know, getting the appropriate agreements to have, you know, a, you know, what's flowchart on a PowerPoint slide turn into reality. Um, and, and I think that there's not a matter of, you know, legal or, or authorities impediments to that. It's really a matter of making the time to go do that. I think she's going to have difficulty doing that if she's continuing to have to you know, do most of the jobs of two people. Carrello, that 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 uh, that authority issue there—that's kind of been what, what you've been saying, isn't it? I mean, I'm kind of where Brian is. I mean, in my view, she's a CNO, right? I mean, I know that I, right. I got it. You, you know that uh, you don't want to get a, ahead of your skis, but in some ways, I, and maybe this is just the, an over-optimistic view of this, like. She doesn't have to waste time putting together a strategy that nobody's going to pay attention to. And I say that kind of tongue in cheek, Brian, because you, you and I have written <laughs> many of those. Like she can yes. just hit the ground. She can just hit the ground running. Right. There are no like three things, five things that, you know, the new CNO wants you to focus on. Like she's just she can just be the chief of naval operations and go after the war fighting things um, that that need to occur. So in some ways it's it's kind of cool. 
I I do worry your your point about you know the vice chief jobs. I mean, it, 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 you know, it's easy to say, oh, you know, the vice chief doesn't do a lot. There are a lot of meetings that the vice chief goes right. to from a readiness standpoint, right? I mean, they're down there meeting with, um, you, you know, all of the other vices, the deputies. I mean, there's a, a huge acquisition and readiness piece that the vice chief plays. They they chair a lot of the budget preparation stuff. So, you know, I think you're right. The more she can offload that and the more that she can just start making decisions uh, in support of the fleet commanders – um, I, I think she has a unique opportunity, however long this takes. Yeah, I think I, I think, you know, a lot of ways, you know, being the acting is freeing in that you don't have to do a lot. Of, you're, you're not expected. It's not that you don't have to. It's just you're not expected to come up with a long term plan for the Navy and a vision and a strategy and a bunch of documents. You can say, I'm just call, carrying on, you know, the previous guy's vision and then focus on the kind of near term issues that you think are really important to deal with now. And if we think China's a near-term problem, perfect. You know, this is you, you can sort of ignore all that long-term stuff that you know may not be that relevant if China's going to be a problem within the next three years. Let's focus on getting you know ready for you know deterring and, and dissuading China. All right. Well, I think on that point we're gonna we're gonna leave it. Um, these are serious times. These are serious issues. We need some real leadership in a really difficult environment. And and again, I'm I'm just going to go back to the to the other part of, about a sense of urgency, get things done now. And I, I, and I, Brian, I like your call for, you know, look at the short term, um, you know, stop worrying about 30 year plans and, and things like that. And what, what are we doing today? What are we, what, what are we doing to make the fleet more effective, more lethal, more efficient? And uh, now, now, and now, and now, uh, you got to always have to plan for the future, but don't mortgage the future more. Don't, don't mortgage the present for the future. So folks, our, uh, our guest has been Brian Clark, longtime Naval analyst, deep thinker, wide deep thinker, and uh, a, a good friend of the podcast. Brian, always great to have you on. Thanks, Chris. It was great to be here with you and Chris. I appreciate it. That does it for this week. As always, our thanks go out to Vaga Meradian and the Defense and Aerospace Group for their support. The Cavaliers podcast is sponsored by HII. HII is a trusted defense and technologies partner supporting all services in all domains and America's only builder of nuclear-powered aircraft carriers. HII, delivering hard stuff done right. Be sure to follow us at Cavus Ships on Twitter. And remember, this podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Cervello. And I'm Chris Cavus. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Hey!